Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam. This is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. I am just so elated and honored for today's episode of the Rambling Runner Podcast. I had someone on the show this week who's one of the most interesting people I've ever spoken to, and it's not even close. It's Canyon Woodward. Canyon's one of the best trail and ultra runners in the country. You would never know that by listening to this conversation because he's also seemingly one of the most humble people in the country as well. In addition to that, he is someone who um, we'll get into the, the other part of his life in a second. Let me just give you some of his bona fides when it comes to a trail and ultra runner. This guy's nuts. Absolutely insane. I love it. So this past year, I'll just, I'll just go chronologically backwards in 2022. Uh, earlier this month, he came in first overall at the Naturalist 30K. He also was 48th overall at UTMB. That's right, the biggest, most important trail and ultra race in the world. He was top 50. That's insane. Before that, he was set the unsupported and overall FKT on the Scar Trail. He also did the unsupported and overall FKT on the Art Loeb Trail. And the Sun Mountain 50K, first overall. Well, you say, well, that was just this year. Well, let's talk about the year before then, shall we? Assault on Black Rock, first overall course record. Cruel Jewel 100, first overall course record. USATF 50K Championships, fifth overall. I mean, my God, fifth overall, USATF 50K Trail Championships. And then the amazing 2022, every year is like this. He's an amazing runner. On top of that, I couldn't wait to get him on the podcast because I love talking to people who spend a lot of their, try- a lot of their time, I should say, working hard to tr- to build something up that is just super hard and engaging and that they're passionate about. This is why I love biographies. I love documentaries. And Canyon has a book and he has a, uh, a documentary that are just super engaging. So Rural Runners and The Dirt Road Revival is the book. These things are unbelievable. So both are with uh, one of uh, basically his kind of partner in crime, Chloe Maxman, who was a state senator up in Maine, and both of them in both the documentary and in the book really show how to kind of go about making change and doing something with passion and vigor and optimism that's really hard. Okay, and that was what we talked about. Now, both of their endeavors were political related. Okay, they were working really hard in from a political perspective. Chloe getting elected, and and uh, in Canyon working in the political process as a campaign manager to to make change in the world, and that's fun and interesting. And they do great work. This is not a political podcast, but with that said, there are us a bevy of lessons and through lines with their work that I wanted to talk to him about because. We all strive to make change, to make the world a better place, and to work well with others while potentially maybe changing their mind on certain things and to do it with vigor and grace and relentlessness. And that's a super difficult combination to have and to hold, and especially in the face of negativity and sometimes overwhelming negativity, right? I mean, so many of us, and understandably so, can be pretty cynical about the political process and maybe some of the people um, therein. But Canyon and Chloe have done amazing things, and I couldn't wait to talk to Canyon about that. And I know that I'm going to take a lot of a lot of lessons from not only their work with their documentary, Rural Runners, and Dirt Road Revival, their book, but also this conversation as well. Canyon is just one of the most extraordinary people I've ever talked to, and I took a lot from this conversation, and I hope you do too. So let's get into it with Canyon Woodward. All right, Canyon, thank you so much for coming on the show. 
So stoked, Matt. Thank you. This is so exciting. So it's somewhat, you're like Renaissance man of the outdoors. You got documentaries, you got books, you're an ultra runner. You're just, you're just hitting it from all angles, my man. <laughs> oh, that's generous. Um, yeah, it's been a, it's been an interesting handful of years. I'm, I'm, I'm stoked on, on what we got going. Yeah, this is great. And I and I love the confluence of all the things that you're doing. Like it almost okay, I'm not gonna say that this has happened, and maybe it's more of a question than anything else. It almost looks like from afar, like that like there was like this grand plan. You're like, I'm gonna do all these things and they're gonna be interrelated. I know sometimes <laughs> after the fact we can kind of see how things come together um in, in, in our own lives and stuff like that. But I guess the first things first is what was the allure for you of just the outdoors because it's that seems to be like the, the you know outdoors rural nature community that sort of thing seems to be ingrained in in all of your being and so what what was the foundation for that yeah so i mean absolutely from from my family i'm um i'm the the youngest of of a bunch of kids uh, my older siblings are rivers forest and autumn we all got all got the nature theme going so probably guess my parents were crazy about the outdoors so canyon's not a nickname that's that, that, that's from <laughs> nope. the fam nope that's yeah um that's my biblical name uh <laughs> we just kidding uh we yeah i was camping from like three weeks old i think was my first camping trip i was seven months old going down the, the green river the gates of the door in utah um and got to grow up in a in a super rural part of of western north carolina um just like running around building forts in the woods on the mountain and um could see the appalachian trail from the mailbox and amazing rivers and lakes and just like outdoor playground as a childhood when, when you grow up in a in a um a situation like that, and I guess it's probably a better question for your parents than for you, but what, <laughs> what is that, that fine line between independence, adventure, embracing what's around you and like not being like reckless or like breaking yourself or, or like, you know, the, the stuff that comes with living in like in the, you know, in a, in a wild type area. But when you're a kid, like you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, <laughs> I think by the time they got to me, they were just like, ah, we've, we've got, We've got several, you know, this, if we lose one at this point, you know, at least we still got a, got a few. He can, he can do whatever. <laughs> Let him roam. Oh, this is like, this is like the 1400s. Like, you know, we're not, we don't expect all the kids to survive. You know, we'll be happy with a 90% success rate. <laughs> no, but tremendous credit to them for just, yeah. I mean, they, they actually homeschooled all of us, um, which which was you know i think there's a lot of different philosophies towards homeschooling some are like the world out there is you know scary and uh i don't know full of all kinds of bad things that we don't want so we're going to keep the kids in and then there's a, other philosophy you know my parents philosophy which is very much just like um there is so much to be gained from experiential education and um outdoor outdoor pursuits in particular and just immersing us in in that from the get-go you know traveling tra traveling on chicken buses and in, in latin america and and camp you know 
traveling through Latin America by tent with family in the 90s, um, occasionally staying at hostels um, and doing doing all kinds of, of outdoor um, bike trips and raft trips from the get-go and um, just super, super grateful for, for the upbringing I had. It was, it was really cool. Yeah, it, for sure. It also seems like the kind of thing that it almost it would have to, not have to be, but it would be hard to like recreate that for someone who like maybe didn't grow up with it. Right. It seems like such like an because, like you said, experiential learning, it would be I can't imagine like say like myself. Right. So like I love running just like you do, but I had a very different childhood. So I grew up in the suburbs. I went to a suburban, you know, nor you know, suburban, you know, town schools. And now I, I live in the suburbs today. And I, you know, if I'm going somewhere, I'm driving a car and stuff like that. And it's like, it's, it's, it's like, I try to put myself in that position. Like say I wanted to raise my family or help raise my family with my wife in that situation. I'd be like, I don't even know where to start. Like, just would be like, like it would be a completely overwhelming experience and probably not a great one. For everybody involved, just from a family perspective, is this just like how like your family, like mom, dad, and their generations grew up? Or was this something that you guys kind of learned together? Yeah, I think they pretty much just made it up as they went. They were from they were from fairly traditional families, I would say. Um, and yeah, you know, I think it's yeah, I think that's the way to do it. It's just kind of like if you know what you're what your passions and core values are, then just go and go and live it with, with the kids. Don't, you know, don't wait until they're a certain age to, to go adventuring. Um, and it's been so cool, honestly, to, to take it to a running, a running perspective, like looking at some of the, some of the young parents out there, like Stephanie Howe getting after it with, with her little one. And the, you know, the jurics I look at as, um, such a, you know, such a model of, of how to get their kids out from, from a young age and, and keep having wild, wild adventures on trail, um, with little ones. It's really cool. Right. Even going back to like Cami Semek, like, you know, like breastfeeding at ultra aid stations, like on a way to a victory. Like it's like, it, it can, it's amazing yeah. how, how things can get be done like that. And it, it really is a remarkable situation that is for sure so so much of what and we're going to talk about like the different work that you do not only as a runner but also like your 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 professional work as well and we should say like you know you are someone who works to help man to help manage political campaigns you know for for democratic candidates this is not a you know and then like a political podcast, right? So we're going to talk about like a lot of things here that aren't political, not just for a specific, um, you know, one side or the other, but oftentimes we're talking about like, there is, there, there aren't sides here, right? There's people who can feel different ways about different kinds of issues that might go across platforms. And oftentimes that's the case for most people, right? They don't just think all the way down a specific platform or ticket. And also a lot of this stuff is kind of like, depends on where you live. Right. And that's the thing that I've thought so much, you know, I was a political science major, in college, I've thought so long and hard about this. And from reading something, and it's not running related, it's almost always political uh, related, is that like oftentimes, you know, the political party system is almost kind of like, where do you live, right? If you're more, you know, if you're more city bound, maybe these certain things matter to you more. Whereas if you're more rural, maybe these other things matter to you more. And neither one is bad, but maybe one is more aligned with a certain party. So it's just kind of like you can easily default into certain buckets and things like that. Before we get into all of that, Community is a big thing for you. You make it very clear in everything that you do and that everything that you embrace. With that said, when you're growing up in a, a pretty rural area, 
and you're homeschooled, how were you able to learn to ingratiate yourself with your own community? And what was your community? Because oftentimes when you are living out, you know, again, away from people, and then you're also not going to the more traditional schooling system, it can be hard, especially for a young kid to kind of get into the community feel because you're not defaulted into it. Yeah, that's a great question. I'm, we were, we were lucky to have some other homeschooling families with kids my age, um, who, who I was really close with. And then I would say organized sports were, were another big source of, of community for me growing up, you know, playing soccer, playing baseball, playing tennis. Um, and yeah. And then just, just some, some really good families in the area. Um, yeah, felt really lucky to, to grow up in, in, a couple of communities that felt pretty tight knit one in, in North Carolina where I was born and grew up for the most part. And then also in this tiny little town in the North Cascades that we moved out to for four and a half years when I was five years old. Um, it's called Stahican. It's just 120 people year round, uh, one room schoolhouse K through eighth grade. One of the few remaining, um, that I went to for, kindergarten and, and third grade. I feel like that that community in particular in that time um, really taught me a lot about the the power of community. It was a re- really isolated community. Um, you could only get there by like a three hour boat ride up um, up Lake Chelan and as the Pacific Crest Trail goes right through, but it's yeah, super remote, super harsh conditions, like four feet of snow on the ground throughout the winter, crazy flooding in the spring and a really interesting mix. It was like, I would say it was roughly like one third of the community was descendants of the Courtney family or like old homesteaders who have been there for ages. They're um, con- pretty conservative Pentecostal Christians and, um, you know, they run the ranch and so much of the economy They're awesome, awesome family. And then like a third park service and their families. And then maybe like a third sort of like more like my family, like kind of wild, I don't know, wild liberal, liberal folks or artists or writers. Um, but everyone, you know, everyone was so close knit and looked out for each other because we were just like, so in it together. Um, and there was a really strong sense of, of that interdependence and knowing that, you know, we just, show up for each other if um, if things went south. And I think that has really stuck with me through the years. Can you speak more to that? Because that was funny. That's exactly where I was going to go with the next question was the that interplay of um, community by choice versus community by interdependence and how how that relationship to our community or our choice to be in a community can be um, one that um, can be almost like mandatory or something that, that we can kind of opt out of if we want to. Mm. Yeah. I mean, so much of, I come at so much of this from specifically a, a rural lens, you know, that's where, that's where I've done most of my organizing and political work and where I've lived, lived most of my life. Um, and I, you know, I think there, I, I know that there can be really, really strong communities in 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 cities and suburbs but um for me i think i've struggled in those environments with there just being so many people that's just like um 
you know, it's you kind of have to put your blinders on to some extent because otherwise you would just be totally overwhelmed if you were having a conversation with every person you passed. Whereas if you live in a community of 120 people or or even 5,000 people, you know, um, the, I think it's just a slower pace of things and, and it really lends itself a lot more to having random relationships just like or just conversations with with um you know the bank teller or you know the, the person at ace hardware or what have you um and i that's that's something about the pace of life of rural communities that i really appreciate and when you're in that situation i think it's also important to understand like you also like you I shouldn't not understand because it's more like I want to just get kind of pick your brain on this is that when you're in that situation, what does that mean for you as someone who um intolerant isn't the right word because being tolerant of somebody you know kind of lends itself to being like all right you're just kind of like putting up with them but being like respectful and tolerant of you know people who may maybe have like a different point of view on certain things um, and not just like superfluous things, like things that you actually care about and they might hold a different view than you. And maybe they feel just as strongly about their point of view as you do. So when you're in that tenant community and you have, you know, these opinions that maybe are different than some of the people around you, but they feel just as strongly and just as certain as you may, what's that like kind of negotiating that situation in a, in a way that you're being respectful, but also maybe not like completely losing sight of your own values. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, val- you hit on values. I think that's a really important thing is to like, remember to go back to what are the core values that, that we share, um, despite disagreements on, you know, politics or what have you. Um, I, <laughs> I often think of a great radio lab podcast on Dolly Parton, where they, um, asked Dolly if she considered herself a feminist, um, which, you know, Dolly Parton, like widely regarded great feminist icon. Um, and she was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> and they went back and they talked, interviewed a Dolly Parton scholar, and they were like, does this bother you that she doesn't identify as a feminist? And the the scholar was like, well, yeah, it does, but it bothers the part of me that left my small town and went off to college and got a liberal arts education. And that kind of just struck me as driving home the point of like how how much language and media affect um, affect our communities and the way that we're able to connect with people who who maybe watch a different watch a you know watch a different news channel than us or um, have have a different educational background than us. We can end up with these words that are just supercharged like feminism and the Dolly example. Whereas if we really get in a conversation um, and get down to the core values, we can be like, oh yeah, we totally agree on equal pay for equal work. Like no, like no doubt about it. Um, and sometimes, sometimes it's better just to, just to go around 
those those words if they if they are too charged and and get down to those what are those common values that we share and oftentimes yeah find that's a great point and, yeah i i love that yeah because you're talking about like this, again if you put it in terms of an example you'd be like who disagrees with this statement right and be like but no matter what the the value no matter what the language is around it right like it's like you like you just put up a great example like you know someone being valued for their work and paid accordingly right like who's against that right like it's, yeah it's like we all have moms right like we all everyone who's born had a mom you know what i mean are you are you really against like gender you know the gender pay gap or whatever right from a, in, a, in a broad-based sense and it's totally. like of course like people can be on the on the same issue as long as you're putting in the same it's putting it in a, maybe a language that they're comfortable with yeah and i think it's hard uh, yeah it's hard because we do get attached to our language i'm like i'm like hell like everybody should be a feminist like i believe that and and it it could be it can be hard to let go of you know um it can be hard to get to the point of just being like okay people have different connotations around some of these words and you know i'm not sacrificing my values to engage in a conversation and search you know search for common ground around um, the side of a word. And I think for me, this, this work of community organizing, political organizing, um, I think one of the, the most uplifting parts of it is, has been just being able to engage really deeply with the other side or (laughs) the other side. I put that in quotes because I, you know, I hate the idea of of different sides, but just going deep and listening and having empathy for what is a person's life story that leads them to have the beliefs that they have. And when you get to, when you get to really hear somebody out, um, it just, I, I feel like it gives you a lot more faith in humanity writ large. Cause I feel like one of the huge problems we have in this country is just writing off like half of the other side of the country, whether you're a, a Democrat or a Republican or uh, some somewhere in between or somewhere way different on the spectrum, you know, it's so easy to otherize this huge segment of people um, where when you really take the time to just dig down and have a conversation, you realize, okay, this is why this person has the beliefs that they do. Maybe I don't agree with them, but I can at least empathize with it and understand it. And that's not true in every case, but broadly speaking. Right. It's kind of like the idea of like, if people are acting in good faith, can we have a conversation? Probably. Right. Like the idea of like, we can have a conversation about this and it can be, you know, civil um, and and things like that. And, And I love the idea that you, you know, part of your, part of your documentary, Rural Runners and Rural Runners, Rural Running, sorry, Rural Running Uh, or Rural rural Runners. I always like mix it up in my head. Rural runners. It's it's a play on running, running for office, running political campaigns, and and running trails. Right. I've watched it three times, and I still like. I'm like, oh god, which one is it? It's like when I, <laughs> it's like when I look up like runners warehouse. Like, is it warehouse W A R E or W warehouse like W E A R? Like, I I can't, no matter how many times I go to the website, I can't remember. Anyway, um, whether it's whether it's that or you know your book, uh, which is also great, Dirt Road Revival. Um, you know, this sense of like going out and talking to people and engaging with them in a way that, first of all, is super time consuming. Also, it's this huge gamble, 
right? Because you don't know if someone's going to be acting in good faith. You're just going up to someone's door, talking to them about something that, like, people don't like talking about politics, man. Even if they are, even if they do want to act in good faith, like, they just, a lot of times people don't want someone to come to their door talking to them about the political process or political candidates. It's just, it's, it's, it's a, a fraught experience. What has been, what are the, the things that has made this process for you something not only that you're willing to do, but something that you've literally based your entire career and part of your life on that a lot of people would be like, immediately be like, oh gosh, like in my core, I don't want to be involved in either end of this process. Yeah, totally. It's a, it is a good question. <laughs> um, I never imagined myself being, being really actively involved in politics, let alone having having kind of a career in political organizing um growing up it just um yeah it, it seemed seemed toxic and kind of rotten at its core and i wanted nothing to do with it and i think um <clears throat> eventually what changed was i came to the place of like okay it, it is those things and and more but also it has a tremendous, tremendous influence on almost every part of our life. And so if we just disengage with it and let it repulse us and push us away, uh, then it's just going to continue to be the worst kinds of people doing it and making these huge consequential decisions for, for all of us. And so so we really have to fight that urge and, and lean in instead, hold our noses and wade into the muck and try and try and make it better if we can. And I think for me specifically, it was being really involved in climate organizing work, um, specifically in, in college um, and realizing that the reason we weren't passing climate legislation anywhere anywhere close to what we needed to address the climate crisis was because of our political system. And, um, so that's, that's, yeah, that's what led, led me to dive headfirst into, into electoral politics. I love that. It kind of reminds me of like me with home repair. It's like, I don't want to be involved in repairing my house. I'm just not that kind of person. I'm not a super DIY guy. Um, that's why I have a podcast instead, but it's like, I could. I just can't ignore it because sooner or later my house is going to fall apart. <laughs> so it's like, as much as I want to ignore it, it's like you just can't do it. You got to be involved um, because you know it's whether you whether you are involved or not. Like the same thing is going to happen, right? Like you you have like if you if you completely disengage from the process, like it doesn't mean the process stops. It just means that it, you just are going to ultimately not like the results and then have no one to blame but yourself. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Let's talk about, you know, your, your entree into politics. We will bring back this to running. People, I promise you we're going to talk about running this podcast. Canyon's a very good runner and a very good uh, trail for runner as well. Um, but let's talk about the, the climate part because I think this is fascinating because obviously this was your entree into it, your work at Harvard, um, all the stuff you guys did with Maxime as well. With Maxime, we should say, was um, something that you helped run for office in Maine and your co-collaborator with the documentary and with the book. And and to say your, your brother Forrest made the documentary, we should say that as well. Um, and, you know, the part of the almost like the this odd thing with climate in terms of it as a political issue, you would think that people who were most affected, who people who were more, most ingratiated with the land 
and with the areas of the country that are most affected by climate issues would be the most would be the people who are most on top of this issue as and it's almost kind of like it's one of those rare instances and the thing, same thing happens on the left too where it's like it's almost like the reverse of what you would expect if like you're an alien coming down like into the world be like hey you know these people were affected by this issue and here's the issue wouldn't they, wouldn't they connect? It, it seemed like it never quite connected, and then it become, became politicized, and all of a sudden, like, that almost, like, completely brooked the two from connecting. So what's it been like for you bringing climate change and everything surrounding it, not only kind of, like, going into rural areas that are predominantly red voting, but also people who are potentially most affected by this issue and doing so in a way that isn't immediately off-putting is something that you're able to engage around. Mm -hmm. That's a good question. And I think, you know, zooming, zooming way back to sort of the roots of that, I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, the oil and gas industry has poured millions and millions of dollars into disinformation campaigns around climate from um, dating back decades. And, you know, the, the environment was never a polarizing issue. It was something it was something that Republicans led on and Democrats led on and pretty much everyone agreed on um, late into into the 90s. And then and then, yeah, I think really fossil fuel companies to blame for for driving the wedge there and uh, creating climate climate denial and climate skepticism and and making it this divisive issue. Um, but I think when you yeah when you're talking about organizing in in a rural rural setting and in, in fairly conservative communities, um, you know honestly oftentimes it it doesn't come up that much on on the campaign trail. Um, but when it does, it's, it's, you know, in the context of Maine where we were running our campaigns the last number of years, um, it's, you know, it's, can I go ice fishing throughout the winter? It's, do I, is there enough rain for the crops? Are, are the lobsters, you know, are the lobsters going to continue their northward, uh, move with warming, warming waters to the point where we don't have a lobster industry anymore? Um, and I've, uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, you look back to like the fracking debate. That was one of the most inspiring for me where super conservative farmers and, you know, rural folks came together with the left to say, you know, we don't want natural gas fracking. And it was kind of unlikely bedfellows going to fight the gas industry and, and winning. Yeah, because that's a great example of like, it wasn't this academic projection. It was like, this is what's happening. This is like, this is happening today. Here are mm, obvious, yeah. this is an obvious situation. And are we okay with that? Right. I think when you get into like, like hypotheticals or projections or modeling, like, first of all, it's easy to take the other side of it. Also, like, We've seen a million models that like, we're not sure. Is this going to happen? Is this not going to happen? Right. Like there's models that it's a model is only as good as the data you put into it. So like yeah. how good is the actual underlying data? How much is it coming from realistic sources? And, and when you get into that debate, it's like, okay, well, like no one's checking the fifth citation on this. And all of a sudden it gets, it can be so easy to get murky. And then all of a sudden and, and someone's entrenched perspective, or it's so easily to be influenced by someone who 
doesn't really have a grasp on it or is purposely manipulating their grasp on it to kind of muddy the waters. And all of a sudden people throw up their hands and say, forget it, dude. I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't know. You know, I think we see this in nutrition all the time, right? It's a very different topic. It's not political, but it's like all of a sudden you can see like every, you know, there's a million different voices on nutrition and no one knows anything. I feel like the more the more you dig, the less you know. And I feel like on some of these topics, from a political perspective, you can kind of construct the same sort of uh, framework. Yeah, and I think climate is especially tricky because it's like even if even if we agree one hundred percent on you know exactly what's going to happen, like every scientist is completely aligned on you know this is the exact pro- projection. Uh, it's still in the future which just does not exist in in people's consciousness of of the now it's so so hard to um yeah to to move systems and take action on something that is not impacting us in the most drastic way right now obviously we're you know we're seeing wildfires like crazy in the west and you know bigger bigger storms and 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 huge effects of climate change now. But that's why for the past couple of decades, it's been so, so hard to mobilize around. Right. And like you said, even if we all agreed on everything, then it's also the idea of like, because it's a global economy, it's like you're in this, comp- from an economic perspective, there is a, there is this sense of real competition for certain things. And it's like, even if we agreed on every part of the underlying models and the projections, like, but at the same time, do we want, you know, the, the economic trade-offs that could happen, we might not, might not necessarily agree on what we're comfortable you know, making trades for or trades with, or the assumptions about other countries or other regions and what they might be willing to trade with. And it's like, it becomes this series of assumptions and gaming out that can just be, it can just be so hard, man. It really is. Totally. And then you add, then you add in the tremendous political influence of the fossil fuel industry and, you know, corporate right, right. And I'm saying it's hard, even if, even if you, if everyone's like on the same page, Totally. Yeah. <laughs> so it's super complicated and it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of optimism for sure. Right. It could be so easy. Just be like, all right, man, whatever. I'm done. I'm done with this. But you've been doing this for a while. So obviously you have a lot of optimism of what this can be and almost like golf. It's like the one really good shot can buoy you through like the next 10 bad shots. And you can just kind of like rely on some of that, some of those positive vibes. Um, what, ha- what for you has become more Sisyphean? Um, the political process or the running process in terms of like pushing that, that big boulder uphill? Yeah, I, I love that question. I think that I'm, I'm lucky to feel like with both, I, I can stop carrying the boulder uphill for whatever stretch of time if I need to, you know, whether that's an off cycle, off year for, um, for political organizing or whether that's just with running being like, okay, I'm just going to take six months off or, or you're off. Like that's, that's fine. And just giving yourself the space to, to do that. But I also feel like both, both of those things build off of each other so much for me. The, the activism and the running, um, really, really feed off of each other with, um, running being something that I think I get a lot of, a lot of joy from and just like nourishment and that's where I go to recharge the battery and allow me to, um, to keep, yeah, to keep 
the energy to to keep organizing and and fighting for for what I believe in and, and feels meaningful. And then, um, you know, the the organizing work. Yeah, I feel like and feels like it for me. It animates my life with with a sense of of purpose. That if I was just running alone 24 24 7 i feel like i feel like for me personally i would be i would be missing something so i feel lucky that they feed off of each other in in that way for me does the the political work support your running because you are helping candidates and helping for specific kinds of causes and and, um, ideas and legislation that also directly impacts like the places where you choose to run and the places that you want to run and and everything that goes into that? I I don't think of it a ton in that way, but that's a good, that's a good point. I mean, I think, you know, we're going to, you know, the Western States course was on fire not long ago and you know we we're seeing more and more climate impacts um affect every every part of our lives in, including the outdoors and and running so i think it's that's a very yeah a very valid insight yeah well let's talk about like you're you're running all right so where, where do you where do you you you, you spend a lot of time out in rural areas, right? So it gives you a wide variety of places to run, different kinds of terrain to run, different kinds of elevation gain to run in, right? You kind of have the full panoply of options. Um, so what are the what are the, the kinds of routes that you like to take from an elevation gain, a technicality, a, you know, a, a distance? Like what, if you, you know, I know you have a coach, David Roche, who's also my coach. Uh, if you were writing your own plan, right? What, what were some of the things that you would want to, to do? Or if you get his plan, how do you, kind of put your stamp on it in terms of the things that you love most yeah i mean i'm a mountain mountain kid through and through i love love mountain running um and running as exploration i feel like over the past four or five years i've gotten to spend a lot of a lot of winter time down here in the southeast and western north carolina running is awesome through the winter and everything just transforms it goes from this you know temperate rainforest just overgrown jungle uh in the summer which i also love to in the winter just like everything opens up and there's all these networks of old forest service and logging roads through the mountains and um our our land backs up to some some forest service land and it's been so fun just taking those logging roads and exploring them for, for miles and miles, um, into the mountains. And it's just like really deepening the sense of sense of place that I think so many, probably everyone who listens to this can relate to whether, whether they're running in a city or suburb or, or out in, in, um, in the mountains, just like traveling, traveling by foot, that kind of slow, slow pace and going from point A to point B to X and Z and Y and looping it all back together, it really gives you um, so much more of an intimate connection to where you are than, you know, hopping on a on a, on a bus or, or driving in your car. Um, and that's one of the things I really appreciate. And yeah, just keep getting drawn back to the mountains. Um you know, one of my one of my favorite places to run is on on the AT that goes right through here. Um, 
Yeah, not a lot of people have run on the Appalachian Trail who are listening to this, but it obviously is one of the most, if not the most famous trail in America. And certainly, maybe, is, is, is it longer than the PCT? I, I feel know. like it might be. Yeah. <laughs> it's close, right? It kind of hang, it hangs, a, it hangs a right up in New Hampshire. So maybe it kind of gets a little bit, a little distance there um, at the end. Um, when you're doing your trail running, how much do you take into account weather? By that, I mean, are you someone who, you know, kind of like all conditions, doesn't matter, we're doing this? Or do you kind of tailor it to the conditions and say, all right, if it's the, if it's trans, if the weather's like, you know, if it's super rainy or wet or just nasty outside, I'll maybe stick to more of the roads. Or uh, how do you how do you approach that? Because I know for certain people, certain people, I mean me specifically, who is newer to trail running, I know that like I get a little... <laughs> Get a little nervous when it's like really some 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 awkward temperatures out there, or just the wet not temperatures, the weather. I should say, um, use the, the temperatures don't matter. Um, the weather can kind of dissuade me from more of the technical side of things. I live in Rhode Island, but there is some pretty technical trail running pretty close to where I live in certain um certain state managed areas. But I kind of get nervous when I get like the the crazy weather patterns. So how have you dealt with that as someone who's kind of lived in that that kind of that that situation for your whole life? Yeah, I think I probably don't don't take it into account nearly as much as my mom would like me to. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of I don't know. I really yeah, I would say overall I I tends to tends to embrace embrace the wild weather. Um, you know, I think we get so many afternoon thunderstorms rolling through. Um, in this area and I just love getting caught in them up up in the mountains and um, maybe it's a little little irresponsible but um, I think yeah I think that said just making sure that you know that you know what you're getting into and you have experience with it and that you you have a good kit you know that you're you're carrying carrying it you know if you're going out for a long, a long thing, um, in the weather, you know, basics like rain jacket, survival blanket, whistle, um, just, just, yeah, some basic, basic gear is important. And how do you manage the, um, the difference between, you know, running as adventure and something that you'd love to do versus, or alongside of, you know, the racing element or going after an FKT or, or really trying to maximize like, all right, what can I, what can I do out here? Um, how do you manage that dichotomy or, or does it work seamlessly together or how, how does it work for you now? And maybe like if it's changed over time, how has that evolved for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I feel like a uh, few, maybe like four or five years ago, um, as I started to get into more of the the ultra running and trail running um it was a lot more exploratory just like um just like pulling out maps and looking for old forest service roads and like what what can i kind of link this over to this and doing like three miles of bushwhacking uh off terrain doing like you know 25 minute miles that our coach david probably would not be <laughs> thrilled about uh crawling through rhododendron thickets and uh just uh being um yeah just being a lot more exploratory and that was really fun and i would say that was my mo for a few a few years um and and i love love that and still feel like i get plenty of adventure in and i would say like the last 
uh, better part of two years, um, I've, I've started homing in a little bit more on, on trying to get fast and spending a little less time crawling through rhododendron thickets with a machete on my back to, to clear a trail. Um, and it's been, yeah, it's been fun chasing, starting to chase some, some bigger goals and focus more on, more on developing as, as an athlete. And along with that, do you find yourself like, you know, viewing like a race as something that is a positive in your running or is it kind of like a, because I felt this before, like at certain points in my life, like I don't know how I would dread races, right? Like it's just like, oh, Mm -hmm. like it became like a negative thing in me. Like it would like bring out like a competitive side of me that went from like exciting and adventurous to like a negative thing where I was like, all right, I was like, you know, you know, I was worried about like, what if I don't succeed or like kind of like the anti-competitive piece to it. Um, and I've kind of vacillated in my life between both extremes and somewhere in the middle. Um, how has it worked for you? For me, I've, I've been lucky to this point, knock on wood that I, races and objectives feel overwhelmingly exciting. And I don't have, haven't experienced the dread around it. Part of that might be uh, probably a handful of factors. I, I feel like I don't put a tremendous amount of pressure on myself and don't have like don't have too much external pressure around my running, which is really nice. Um, and I also don't do that. I, I would say I don't do that many races compared to at least some folks. Um, you know, like. Yeah, one, one, two, maybe three big objectives a year. Um, and up until the last year and a half, two years, I would always, um, I would take, you know, four to six months off or just like very easy after, after doing like a big hundred mile objective. What are you working on now, athletic wise? So let's see, it's, it's been a really fun year of of doing um doing a couple of big fkts and getting to go and do utmb um that was that was a biggie um i feel like i'm just just tell me about that let's let's talk utmb real quick because obviously that's that's like you know like all of a sudden like it's like i would love to hear your perspective on this for a couple reasons first of all obviously it's like the biggest trail race in the world it also is this kind of unique um immersion of like trail running trail culture and like a pretty at the same time kind of like major commercialization of the sport which i don't say that in a negative way it's just like hey this is a big event it's just viewed by a lot of people there's a lot of sponsors around it it also makes it possible so i'm not gonna like i'm not gonna knock it but it also like for someone with your background i love to hear your opinion of kind of everything that went into utmb in terms of your experience and just everything around it mm. yeah i mean it, it was awesome i feel so grateful for the experience. Um, I'm, I'm on a amateur racing team, the green racing project out of Vermont that, um, that supports us and paid for travel and lodging and made it possible for me to get over there. So just so grateful for the opportunity to go and race in Europe. And, um, yeah, if you, you know, if you told me like a year and a half ago before I started working with our coach, David Roche, um, that I was going to be in the line in the elite field at UTMB, I would have lost my lost my mind. Um, it was just so it, I was just really happy to to be there. That was 
such so cool and such a win and i got to make a, a trip out of it with my older, older brother forrest and um see a new part of the world which is really cool the race itself is bonkers it feels like the tour de france like folks are just lining the streets through village after village after village for hours just going wild um it's such a such a unique experience completely completely different from you know anything else i've experienced with with a trail race before um <laughs> maybe at some point by like a few hours in i was i was like okay if if you could tone it down with the cowbells and maybe go to bed for a little <laughs> while that would be cool but <laughs> but overall it was really cool to experience that energy um and you know it starts at 6 p.m so you you go pretty quickly into the night in some some real rugged beautiful mountainous terrain um going up and over into italy um you get to the top of these climbs and you look back and there's just miles and miles of headlamps snaking into the distance in the dark and it's such such a beautiful feeling of connection to the thousands of other people doing doing the race out there doing the same thing um i think that was one of the most special parts for me and yeah i think as far as the commercialization um yeah pros and cons i i think um it's really cool how big of an event they make it the field that they attract from all over the world and they just have tremendous live coverage that is is really fun um and yeah on the flip side you know i think <laughs> i'm i'm not a huge fan of of capitalism and commercialism running the day and um you know they they just transitioned to this new system this year for qualifying where you know you got to run they've got all of their world series races and you got to like you got to buy more of their products, you know, run more of their, their races as opposed to being a little bit more grassroots where you can qualify through, through any, any races. Um, so pros and cons. Yeah. How about the trail? So you're someone who spent a lot of time on the Appalachian Trail at various points in the Appalachian Trail, right? You spent a lot of your time, um, in the mid Atlantic up to the East coast. What was, how would you compare some of the routes you've run over and over again here in the U S versus, uh, that terrain? Um, I would say it felt, uh, hmm. yeah, similar in some of the, just like really big, a lot of really big, steep climbs and big, steep descents, um, uh, much more open, um, less, you know, less running through forest and more on, it was much more, more rocky terrain over there and more exposed. Um, and obviously you're running around this massive, massive glacier, which is really cool. Um, yeah, I would, yeah, I would say a lot of similarities, like fairly technical, steep as heck, um, a ton of, ton of vert in the short stretch. Yeah, I was listening to Katie Shive's interview with Dylan Bowman over on the Free Trail podcast, and you know they were talking about it. And she, um, you know, another New Englander uh, who I think spent a lot of time in Europe now, who it was funny hearing her talk about the course. It was funny. It left Dylan Bowman like 
his mouth was like agape on the on the live stream uh, because she was basically describing the course as like, I think it's super runnable. This was kind of her talking. Like, I didn't find it to be very technical at all. Like, in fact, I've run a lot of races that are much more technical. I thought it was supremely runnable if you can handle the distance. And I remember Dylan being kind of like, oh, wow. Like, I didn't expect her to say that. And nor did as someone who's run the course. I don't think he kind of viewed it the same way as someone who's run technical terrain for a long time. How did you view it from that perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think I think being an East Coast runner, perhaps, you know, I, I think our trails out here are, tend to be a bit more on the on the technical side compared to compared to out west oftentimes so i think um i would imagine yeah that probably fed into to her perspective i've i've yeah i i would consider it technical like i would consider a lot of trails out here fairly technical but definitely not uh you know you're not on your hands and knees <laughs> All right. I want to give a shout out to your book, All right, Dirt Road Revival, and the documentary. One of the big, I think, underlying themes behind this for a lot of people is, hey, if you want to get something done that you feel passionate about, it's kind of like gives you a kind of like a mini playbook on how to do it in terms of not only getting, you know, work done that you love, but also doing so in a way that isn't transactional that is much more involved with getting people alongside of it. And there's a quote actually in the documentary where I think Maxime says like, this isn't about like Facebook ads and influencing people this way. This is much more about connectivity. I mean, he doesn't use the word connectivity, but that was kind of the point of the, of the quote in the, in the documentary. So for people who are looking to do that in some way or shape or form, maybe it's political, maybe it's not, maybe it's someone starting a running group that they're, you know, that they, they want to, you know, bring, bring that, bring that out, or maybe something, anything kind of along these lines, but there's principles that they want to take from your experience. What are some of the things that you think that people should really put their, uh, put their weight into, to, to make this sort of thing happen with the understanding that nothing that, um, that's lasting happens quickly? Yeah. I, I love that. I, I mean, I think that there's, one that nothing happens quickly is important to to keep in mind that you know an election cycle a couple of election cycles that's that's not enough to create long lasting change like we've got to stay in these fights for for decades be the long distance you know the long distance runners of of making our communities and the world the places that we um that they are in our like deepest soul visions of them and then just like finding your people i have so much so much faith in the power of a handful of really committed folks um putting their minds together and 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 fighting for a vision um i think that that's you know that's the way that the world changes that's the way that we make our communities places that we want to live out our lives and and maybe raise families um and so i would say yeah find your people and get creative and decide you know what it is that you want to birth into this world together and and you know commit to figuring out the way to do it together and it's it's really powerful and, and meaningful meaningful work um all right. Last thing. We're in the middle of an election cycle. In the middle. We're at the end of an election cycle right now. Are you in- involved in anything going on right now? Yeah. Chloe, Chloe and I just started a um, 501c4 nonprofit called Dirt Road Organizing. Um, and 
basically it's the goal is to take our lessons learned through you know the past decade of organizing on climate and and doing rural organizing and be able to train other folks to either you know run for office or to work on issue organizing in their community or on a campaign um, as well as you know educating educating the the up and coming generation to get more more young folks um, to plant you know plant some seeds of moving back to your small town and and putting down roots there and and working to make it a better place um, and that's that's also where the film is hosted rural runners um, if you go to dirtroadorganizing.org or just google rural, rural runners um, you can see it it's a 28 minute film that my brother made um, that premiered a mountain film this this spring and uh, you can request to host a screening if you want and, and have a discussion with with Chloe and I um, ahead of the election or or after the election um, and yeah we would be stoked to stoked to, to talk with folks about you know what ideas you might have for yeah I was so, it's such a good documentary movie. it was excellent I Thanks. loved it. You know, it's, it's so funny. Like, I was watching it, you and Chloe doing awesome stuff. And like, I was like, again, I didn't know you guys at all. Right. And I'm sitting there watching it. And it's, a, it's a very personal documentary, even for as short as it is, so like 28, 29 minutes. And um, yeah, it just got me really excited, really pumped up. Um, again, it's not like I'm out there working on a political campaign, but like kind of like to do anything. Right. Like you mentioned, like to birth something into the world, it really is inspiring and exciting. And the book is also very good. I think the, the book is much more like a playbook on how to do, um, you know, the, the, the grassroots rural campaigning, whereas the documentary felt felt a little bit more like if you have a vision, here's how we how's here how we did our vision. And you can kind of take from it. And, and it really inspired me. That's for sure. So. Thanks, thank you so much for coming on the show is there anything else you want to plug before we get going i don't think so thank you so much i really really enjoyed it canyon thank you so much for coming on the show this was an absolute blast i just wish wish i had five hours to talk to canyon I mean, it turns into a joe rogan podcast i mean he just his running life is so textured that we could have spent two hours just talking about running. I didn't want to do that. I want to get into more than that. Um, but yeah, we try to pack a lot into an hour. You know, when you when you do that, when you have so much meat on the bone with a conversation like this, it's tough. It's tough to do a try to do so much in one hour's time. Uh, I think we did a good job, uh, but overall, I think this would have been a, a better like two or three hour podcast. Uh, truth be told, uh, he just has such an incredible life story and so much going on for someone who's in his mid twenties. My God. Canyon Woodward, what, what, what an amazing guy that is for sure. Thank you so much for listening and happy running.